David Gerstel has written some of the top books available for construction professionals who want to build a better business. His latest book, Building Freedom, A Construction Pro's Path to Financial Independence, is the topic of today's conversation. I've had the opportunity to get to know David over the last few years, and during that time, we've spoken for hours over topics ranging from building to politics, investing, philosophy, and beyond. In that time, I realized something, that his unique ability to run a successful construction company and then teach those principles to others is actually not even his greatest skill. It's his ability to think independently, challenge assumptions, and to arrive at better answers. You will see it firsthand in today's conversation and also in our previous episodes with David. Our interviews with him are some of our highest rated to date, so I encourage you to listen to the full library. Enjoy my conversation with one of the industry's greats. Before we begin, I would be remiss without a quick thanks to three very important Building Optimal partners. First, to Lowe's and their MVPs Pro Rewards and Partnership Program, of which my own company is a very proud member with exclusive benefits and offers like e-gift cards and in-store freebies. Lowe's is a true partner, enabling contractors like you and me to succeed. Second, to Ram Windows made right here in the Lone Star State. I use Ram Windows on every home, and I love everything about the windows they make and what that company stands for. And last, but certainly not least, to Subzero Wolf Cove, the premier appliance company in the world, which we use exclusively in our homes. We are thankful for the support of these wonderful companies, which help make this podcast a reality. David, this is um, round number three, I believe, and uh, a round three that I am very, very excited about because, um, well, first of all, we always have a good time talking. And secondly, this book that we really want to focus our discussion on, your latest book, Building Freedom, is one that struck a lot of chords with me. So first of all, great to be talking with you and uh, and welcome back. No, thank you. It's good to be back. I. Uh... I might make some other podcasters mad at me for saying this because I'm a guest on their shows also, but this is the best po- construction industry podcast. There's one or two others that are strong. This one's outstanding. So I'm really well, delighted to be here. Well, I appreciate the the kind words. Let's kick this thing off. So here's where I want to start. Let's Let's create a little context. So, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about you as an author is you have a very specific goal in mind before you ever pick up the pen. And in this particular book, I feel like you identified something. We can call it a gap, perhaps, that needed to be filled. But I'd love to hear from you what exactly that gap was. So you're making me smile a bit because uh, the truth is what I need in order to get started writing is a title. Once I've come up with a title I like that describes a subject, then I'm off and running. If I don't have a title, I can't seem to ignite. <laughs> Odd. Um, for this book, that I'll just tell you briefly, honestly, my initial motivation was embarrassingly negative. 
there is a certain, I don't want to mention individuals, so let me say just a general school of thought uh, in the world of, in our industry, in the world of you know, artisan construction, and artisan builders, custom home builders, remodelers, and so forth. There's a, there's a, circulating through us is a, is a school of consultants and coaches trying to win our business. Some of them are very good. Some of them push lines of thought that, that I, I find um, off-putting or worse, in some cases reprehensible. I had a really negative reaction to one book in particular that came out and really wanted to write a counter to it. Um, because everything about it was wrong, in my opinion. I mean, it was saturated with the idea that that you focused on making profit first <clears throat> instead of building the company that was founded on a strong foundation, including great respect for and concern for employees that would therefore, in the long run, be sustainable and profitable. I thought this school of thought, I think, has things upside down, and I wanted to respond to that. So as I got into the book, um, I realized I wasn't going to be writing a book about systems or um, specifics of construction company management. I've done plenty of that. My books seem to find readers. I don't need to repeat myself. I, I was gradually realized I was writing a book about purpose, possibilities, and principle, about answering the question, what is my purpose as a builder? Uh, what are the possibilities out there for me? And what are the principles I need to embrace to realize those possibilities? Now, I know that's pretty broad scope, so maybe I ought to cite a specific. I mean, a purpose for me from the very beginning of my career was to get to what the title of the book describes. Um, let me read you the title. I got a book right here. Building Freedom, A Construction Pro's Path to Financial Independence. I was obsessed from a very early age with individual freedom. I hated being told what to do. And I wanted to get as quickly as I could as a builder to the point that I was free to do what I wanted. I was free to get up in the morning and decide what I wanted to do with my time. Um, I didn't have to kowtow to a client and hold myself back in this conversation because I was afraid they might I might lose their business. So I wanted to build freedom for myself. That was my purpose. And I saw the possibilities. I mean, those of us who are in construction, if, in my opinion, we embrace the right approach, which to my way of thinking is, as one title, one chapter of my book is titled, is lean and frugal, we've got the possibility of getting to building freedom. We've got the possibility of achieving economic freedom pretty rapidly. There are downtimes, and we're getting into one now more than likely, but over the long haul, there's a great demand for what we produce. Society needs infrastructure, housing places to do work. And if we're good at producing that, we're going to have clients and we're going to make, be able to make healthy margins on our projects, pay ourselves well, acquire profit, share it with employees properly, and take our share and make investments that will put us on, well, not easy street. I, I don't know that there's an easy street through life. I, I certainly haven't found it. If anybody out there did find it, please let me know how to, how to navigate to it. But um, a, a very happy street, a, you know, a, uh, a street where we get to choose what we want to do in life to determine what's our priority, what we want to do for the world, for our families, for ourselves. And they just move down that path. So that's kind of what I, that was kind of the 
ideal for the book that I developed as I wrote it. In one of our conversations leading up to this discussion, you said something that really resonated with me. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase and correct me if I'm if I'm off base, but you said something about that the more or less the the bliss or the the level of I don't you didn't use the word happiness, but it's kind of maybe an, a, a similar concept here. What you feel once you have that financial freedom is almost impossible to understand until you have it, and I can see that. I think that's also a really inspirational idea for everybody who doesn't have it to realize that there is a complete freedom that one can can uh, achieve not just of not just financial freedom but with that financial freedom will come a lot of uh, uh a less stress there like what you said there there may no be be no easy street in life but it certainly gets a lot easier once you achieve that and keeping that and holding that front and center of mind like what you did which really became your purpose there's a lot of there's a lot of value to that i don't know that i said that i, I think you said that a lot better <laughs> i'd be able to I, what i really <laughs> like is your point that it's hard yeah. to realize how good it is until you're there you know i, yes. I sometimes see it in my neighbor's eyes or hearing their comments. I mean, they see the way I'm able to move through life and have been able to for going on 40 years now. I got to financial freedom at a very modest level, but sufficient when I was in my mid-30s. And I just built it. I built the fortress ever since, made it stronger and stronger. And how long had you been in business? I know it had been less than 10 years when you achieved what you define for yourself as financial freedom. I've been in construction for about 15 years, starting from, you know, working as a laborer, digging a ditch. Sure. Um, and I sort of gradually eased over to being a general contractor. Out okay. of necessity. Not and really. you had been a, a business owner for about how many years at that point? Oh, maybe a dozen. Okay. 10 to 12, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, I, and I got to where I got so quickly, partly because out of luck. I should probably stress that. I mean, I think um, I've had an awful lot of good luck in, uh, in my work career. I, uh, I, I was married. We've um, become the step parents of two little kids, um, living with my wife in a $140 a, a month apartment. In Berkeley, you know, you can't get a doghouse in Berkeley for $100 a month anymore. And it was a pretty nice place. We were pretty comfortable there. And I took it in my head we should buy a house, not realizing that it was a terrible time to buy a house. Mortgage rates were about 16%. I didn't even know what a mortgage was, and I certainly didn't know 16% was high. So I went shopping, and uh, we found a house that we still live in, a beautiful little cottage, and we bought it. We'd saved up enough to pay a a third of the very low price as a down payment. It was very low because there was no market. Nobody was buying at 16% interest rates except really stupid people like us. So we got our little house at a, at a at bargain basement prices. And I suddenly realized I got a house, but I got debt and I hate this. And I started working, you know, 60, 80 hours a week. We had the mortgage paid off for the most part, except for a small smidgen. 
in about 11 months. Well, that was an amazing stroke of good fortune because that meant after that, because we live very frugally, we're very careful with money, we live a healthy, actually lovely lifestyle, but we're frugal. After that, we had that house with that mortgage paid off, I was able to accumulate cash very quickly. And again, I got really lucky. I stumbled into a series of books and mentors that taught me how to invest. And I started doing it. So, you know, a few years later, I had a, a rental free and clear and a little portfolio of treasury bills and the cash flows were enough really to pay all our bills. And so um, I was lucky. But, but, and, but often people have said to me, you know, Dave, couldn't be done now. Well, that, certainly people would say that to me now. You couldn't possibly buy a house now and pay the mortgage off in 11 months. So I, I've looked around here in the East Bay, uh, San Francisco East Bay, or Bay Area, to see if it would be possible. And you know what? It is. I, I found a place where you can buy a nice little home for $180,000. It's part of a cooperative village. So a young carpet, young general contractor whose business has been booming could go in there buy his house, quickly pay off the mortgage, and begin building the rest of his investment portfolio. Um, in other areas of the country, there are other ways to do it. There's a story in my book that I tell, which I love. It's about a young couple. They too crave financial freedom. So they bought 20 acres of more or less discarded farmland. I mean, it was worn out, so it was very cheap. And then they bought a, a beat up old trailer for two or $3,000, and they put it on the farmland, the guy was a good carpenter. I guess he had his license. He renovated the trailer. He and his young wife moved into it. And then they started saving money again. And pretty soon he had enough money to build a house on his 20 acres, a nice little house. He and his wife moved into that, rented out the trailer. So suddenly they own their home free and clear. They got a rental property. They're on their way. So it's possible. It's always possible if you will embrace frugality. Yes. And that has always been a core tenant that you have spoken of since I've known you huh, um, yeah, for several years now. Yeah. And I think that that is something that needs to be continually echoed though in, in the, uh, the chambers of our industry, the necessity for frugality. And it's very easy to, um, to get kind of uh, sidetracked by shiny trucks and things like that. You know, it's an unpopular word. It's equated with stinginess. I, I want to stress that what I mean by it is very careful, premeditated use of all resources, financial included. And I also want to mention, there's an ethical dimension to careful use of resources that motivates me, at least, and I would hope it motivate others. You do less environmental damage if you use resources with more care. And God yeah. knows it's something we've got to do. Less yeah. environmental damage. One thing that I want to talk about a little bit, the book covers a lot of ground beyond just that financial. You challenge some common assumptions, such as how the customer comes first, something that I wholeheartedly agree with. But what are some other things that come top of mind to you in regards to bad advice that we hear? Well, I'd like to get to the customer comes first question or customer come should the customer come first or second question? Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. that. I, I've got a chapter in the book called Thought Remodeling. In fact, I'm 
building an article for Journal of Light Construction based on that chapter right now. So let me go a little woo-woo for a minute, um, hope your listeners don't mind, uh, and talk about the origins of the idea. Thought remodeling for builders, for construction pros, is rooted in the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy. Here's cognitive behavioral therapy theory in a nutshell. Thought creates emotion. And I've expanded that for thought remodeling for builders to thought creates emotion, creates action. Now what psychologists have observed is that people who suffer from significant anxiety and depression often have thought errors embedded in their minds. Uh, one is uh, personalization. People with a lot of anxiety, depression, um, self-deprecation will cease, you know, won't hear from a good friend. And they'll immediately assume a friend doesn't like me anymore. I've done something wrong. I'm a bad person. Um, they'll feel bad about that. Whereas in fact, it may just be that the friend had an emergency and couldn't, couldn't reach them for a while. Um, psychologists call that thinking error personalization. So um, I got interested in CBT because when I was much younger, I would, I would have occasional, very brief, thank God, but very intense bouts of depression. And when I was about 50, I had the worst one I ever had. A bunch of severe losses piled up on me and kind of put me down. And at that time, I, I stumbled across CBT and learned to root out my thinking errors and replace them with reasonable, not extravagant thoughts, but reasonable thoughts. Instead of thinking, oh, you must be a real jerk, I'd think, yeah, you're okay. Some people like you, some don't. That's fine. You've done okay in life. Um, you'd be comfortable with yourself. Um, since I embrace CBT, I haven't had any depression. If it even, if I get a, even a bare beginning of it, I can just dismiss it just like that. It took work to get to that point where I was that good at CBT, but it was labor well spent. Now, as I was thinking about, as I got into my book, I began to realize there are thinking errors that construction professionals embrace that have a lot of parallel to the thinking errors that the CBT therapists focus on. Let me give you a couple of specific examples and try and ground this idea. Um, one I see is the growth or the grow or die thinking error. That's pushed a lot by certain industry consultants. Now, I want to say that it might be in part pushed by them because they stand to benefit from people who embrace it. Um, for example, one guy who sells you know, marketing advice tells people you got to grow or die. And he also tells them to spend three or 4% of their revenue on marketing. Well, if they're building their revenue, which is what he means by grow, although occasionally he remembers to remind people that profit matters too. If the revenue is growing and they're spending 4% of it on marketing, that means more money flowing his way. If, if the person whose revenue is growing can be retained as a client. Well, I mean, on the face of it, the grow or die thinking error is, is, it's, is an error. Um, it can lead to 
bad emotion and bad action. Um, if you think you have to grow or die, or if you're not a success, if you're not growing revenue, um, then you feel bad. And then you take bad actions as a result, following the thinking, emotion, action path that can be very self-destructive. Um, here's a horrifying example. As I was, it's horrifying to me anyhow. As I was um, writing the book, I briefly was a consultant to a young couple that had been built a nice, small, compact construction company that they were running very well. They're making a good living. They were making some profit they could put aside into other investments, and they were getting a good start into life at, you know, their sort of earliest 30s. Um, they got somehow infected with this grow or die idea, and they started reaching for much bigger volume that they could handle. That included taking on a project that they really had no business touching. It was much, way more, much, much larger than anything they'd done before. It was for a ruthless client, a self-aggrandizing architect, and was going to proceed under a exploitive contract. They signed it. They got into the project. They lost a quarter of a million dollars, wiped out their life savings, basically. Um, I've heard variants on this story over and over. People, I can't tell you how many times construction pros, contractors of all kinds, you know, excavation guy comes to mind, for example, telling me, you know, I do much better now that I've got four employees instead of 20. I do much better now that I'm running three rigs, the one I drive and the one my two best guys run, as opposed to the 25 I used to have. I'm doing better financially. Over and over, I hear this story. Now, there are people who are just fascinated by the challenge of uh, growing a larger company. I have some friends who have gone on to grow quite large companies in, in the course of their own lives, you know, even without starting with a parent who was a contractor. So, they, they, I mean, one fellow, for example, has built a company with over 80 employees. Um, he recently sold it to his employees. I mean, ironically, I think I probably, we're about the same age, and you know, we kind of came up and moved along together. It appears to me that my financial position is much stronger than his at this point. In other words, I have a much larger asset base and much more free cash flow from investments than he does. It's sort of ironic. But he feels very good about what he built. He feels very good about having passed a viable company on to his employees. And God bless him. He happens to be a great guy. Has taught me a lot. But come back to the point, to the thinking error. Grow or die is a thinking error. It should be replaced with something like, if I wish to grow, let me grow prudently, building strength all the way that can support the growth, something along that line. Let me not rush pell-mell into just generating revenue for its own sake and for bragging rights. So that's one thinking error that afflicts our um, industry. Another one is, uh, and perhaps my favorite, is overhead obliviousness. Shall I go on about that a little bit? I've been rambling here a bit. Want me to no, I, I think that you have to go on. This is going to be important. All right. Overhead obliviousness. Oh, here's my favorite anecdote about overhead obliviousness. A certain young lady who happens to be one of the best consultants in the construction industry was giving a talk about margin, overhead profit margins, 
um, locally here. A friend of mine went to the talk. I didn't go. I mean, I, I've heard this person speak so much, I didn't feel I needed to go again. Um, my friend actually ran a, a structural pest control company, the best one in town, and it ran a strong business. Um, kept his employees on board for the long term, had an excellent reputation, was sought after, respected. He went down to hear this young lady give her talk. And at some point, she said, now let me get this right. Oh, two things she said. Actually, one thing at the talk and then again elsewhere. She said, uh, you know, if you have a 40% gross profit margin, you're okay. And my friend piped up and said, hold on there, Pam. Um, I mean, if you have a 40% gross profit margin and 90% of it's over for overhead and, you know, and 10% is for profit, or just a small fraction of it for profit, just two or 3% profit and, uh, left over, you don't have a viable operation. She just blew it off. She, she didn't, seem, it didn't seem to register with her. I could hardly believe a story when I first heard it. Then I came across something she'd written. She, she said that in a company, the production manager should have his eye on job costs and another issue. And the owner should have his eye on sales, something else. What was startling to me was that she didn't mention at all that someone should have their eye on overhead, on the cost of running the company. Now that's overhead obliviousness. And it's not extreme overhead obliviousness. Um, I run across it regularly among construction pros. But consider this, consider that there are two builders. In fact, there are two builders, but I'm not gonna name them. And one lives a little, on a little dead end in a nice little city. And the other lives about a mile away, same city. Uh, the one, let's call him Construction Pro A, tends to use gross profit margins for his remodeling projects of around 32%. That's considered low by many savants in the remodeling industry, but this guy wants his services to be a good deal for clients and uh, for various reasons. I won't go into those now. The other guy um, insists on the 40% or better gross profit margin that is preached by some as the industry standard. So Construction Pro A has a 32% gross profit margin is an overhead vigilante. And he has cut his overhead, aside from his personal pay, what I call out-of-pocket overhead for office systems, office help, so forth, to under 2% of revenue. But it's taken a lot of work for him to get there, but there is no wasted motion, no wasted expenditure in his office. I happen to know this well, because I know this guy really well. I have, let's say, worked with him. Now, the other guy, Construction Pro B, he's piled up overhead. He has a beautiful office. He's got a receptionist who's answering the phone and sitting in the lobby to welcome in any passerby who might want to buy a $150,000 kitchen. He's got a warehouse. He's got several nice trucks, you know, with his sign on them. He's got an estimator, project manager, tons of the latest, greatest software, 
and it goes on. So he has a, a 40% gross profit margin, but he's got overhead that's running about 22%. So, or more actually, close to 30%, maybe high 20s, uh, varies year to year, of course. So what's his profit margin? 12%. Well, that's considered pretty good. Um, let me backtrack on that a second. Um, aside from his own pay, he's running about 18% overhead. So he's got 20% left for profit and owner's pay, roughly. The other guy, this is Construction Pro A, is running this 1.5% out-of-pocket overhead. He's got a 32% gross profit margin. So he's got 30% left for owner's pay and profit. Now, who's running the more, the more financially successful company? Obviously, Construction Pro A. He's got much higher percentage of revenue left over for owner's pay and profit. And both of these companies, by the way, do about the same, did about the same volume. In today's dollars, eight to $10 million a year. So um, the consequences of overhead oblivion are really severe. Um, I'll tell you another business thinker, but I mean, it's, I shouldn't mention myself in the same breath, actually, a, a true business thinker who just is emphatic about the need for overhead uh, vigilantism for really keeping it under control. That guy's name is Warren Buffett. He will not buy a company where management is not all over the overhead issue. Because when they're not, company earnings, bottom line, gets shriveled. So there's my thoughts in that direction. I, I mean, I, I achieved financial freedom as quickly as I did because um, of my tendency toward using financial and other resources with enormous care and uh, toward uh, overhead control. And very quickly in my career, <clears throat> a very large portion of my margin was for owner's pay and profit. And because I didn't take much owner's pay because we live simply, I had a lot of profit that I could use to disperse to clients and put into investments, which made me, in short order, financially free. So one thing that is coming to mind with what you're saying is um, this ties into because I also really believe in uh, um, the value of cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, where did you encounter it? How did you come across it? So I came across a book and oh, I forget the name of the book. In fact, I think you and I might have talked about this in just one of our just phone conversations a, a year, maybe a little over. Could it be, uh, and uh, we've we've read the same one. Cognitive um, behavioral therapy made simple. Yeah, 10 yeah, strategies. Yes. Yep, that's it. In fact, we ought to link to that so that um, okay. our I'll listeners can also uh, access that because it's a fantastic book. That author has, I believe, two books that are uh, complimentary. Yep. Um, but, you know, we are, so we're creatures that are, emotional and 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 rational but what i what i have come to learn and see is that we really are emotional creatures that are capable of rational thought <laughs> and yeah. the is, the issue <laughs> is with that so so the challenge because what you're offering is sound reasoning solid advice frugal falls in in oftentimes the the rational bucket it's not exciting these maxims that you talked about grow or die 
and go big or go home, which is its its other cousin. Those kinds of things are exciting for people. They generate emotion. Think about growing a big company. And and if you follow the these maxims down the rabbit hole, you, all you need to do is get on social media for five minutes and flip through and you see all kinds of people who have no, no business with a microphone shouting out advice. And they're offering a lot of these bad maxims. So yep. the problem is it's so easy to feed the emotion that may lead us to to outcomes that are uh, are at odds with our best self-interest. So that is one of the challenges that I see and and the only way David that I know how to combat that is just th- is really through examination and education, reading quality materials learning from people like you and really getting a, a self-awareness about how you behave and who you are through some sort of practice like this cognitive behavioral therapy. I love that. Um, grow bigger, grow home. What, <laughs> what, what YouTube does, what encourages people to do is, is create headlines, which are grabbers They'll, they'll announce the best tennis match in the world or the very worst tennis match that ever took place. <laughs> it's always extreme. And that extreme, that, that noise tends to hook us. And you're right. The guys who are pitching quick and easy riches are throwing out these pronunciamentos about, you know, billionaire in a, in a, in a, in a, in a second. Um, for every, every, and we make tremendous heroes out of these guys who do grow big. We ought to bear in mind that um, for every one of those, there are countless tens and hundreds of thousands who grew to zero. I mentioned yep. to you once, Jared, and I think it's worth repeating here. On three different occasions, I've been approached by people from Silicon Valley, which is not that far from where I live, um, you know, technology guys who thought that they were going to make a, a big killing by creating an estimating program for general contractors or construction professionals in general, all kinds of contractors. And they wanted me to um, help them out. I mean, that was, it was interesting because that was even before I wrote my book on uh, estimating and bidding, my book, Nail Your Numbers. Um, and always their pitch to me, and these were, I mean, these were smart guys, you know, um, guys who had, uh, degrees from Stanford who'd been working for the, the major technology companies in Silicon Valley. And always their pitch to me was, you know, we're going to make a, a killing here, Dave. Here's what we see the possible market as. We'd like to have you on board. And of course, we're happy to pay you with, um, you know, equity, stocks, shares. And I would say, well, it's very kind of you, but no thanks. I'll take cash on the barrel head. And I'll tell you why. You're going to fail. The chances of your succeeding are somewhere south of zero or just barely north of zero, probably more realistic. And in truth, they all did fail. And they all poured substantial amounts of their own life savings into those efforts. Now, clearly, you know, somebody succeeded. There's a, a program called Clear Estimating, which I've never looked at, but would like to look at, haven't gotten around to yet, which I'm hearing pretty good things about and people seem to be buying it. Maybe the guys who built it have created a viable estimate, or maybe not. I mean, maybe they're still hemorrhaging cash as they try to build a market. I don't know. Um, but yeah, bear in mind that for each of these guys who tries to hit a home run, tens of thousands strike out. Um, 
it's here's my solution to this temptation to grow big. Um, my solution, my recommended solution, not the one I practiced, is look, you can create financial freedom for yourself um, if you bear down and work hard for 10 years. Do that first. And then if you feel like trying to go big, create a separate corporation and use that corporation to house your attempt. Because if that, if that happens, even if that attempt to go big collapses, which it likely will, um, you'll have your safety net in place. And you and your family will be secure and happy and be able to live a comfortable, healthy lifestyle um, through a hard time. It's, when hard times come, it's, that's when you collapse. I, I saw um, a great YouTube last night by... Um, I just sent it to you. What's his name? Our, one of our favorite. Ray Dalio. Yeah, Ray Dalio, one of um, Jared's favorite sages and one of my favorite sages. And Ray was talking about where we are historically, what the potentialities are for uh, the next few years economically around the world. Um, he's scared to death, by the way. He thinks we're in a really, yeah. really dangerous situation, not only economically, but politically. Uh, nuclear war is a real possibility and so forth. But aside from that frightening view, let me just mention that somewhere in the course of his his presentation, he says, you know, don't go for the showy statusy symbols and up on the screen flashes a picture of a $200,000 Mercedes. He said, you know, that's just all about seeking other people's approval. You know, when you, when you see somebody driving that $150,000 BMW, Bear in mind, they probably don't own it. The bank does. <laughs> and they're driving it because they feel bad about themselves and they need approval. And they think if they drive that BMW down the street, people will look at them with admiration, which unfortunately is true. As ridiculous as it is, it's true. So they'll get a little approval. But um, me, I'd rather have financial freedom. I drive a spick and span, immaculate 1999 Ford Ranger. I'll take it over the Mercedes and the approval I, that goes with it. I, I bet the bank doesn't own that, do they? Hell no. <laughs> they never did. <laughs> um, David, we would be remiss to, we kind of glossed over, um, well, we started down the path of, of customer comes first. That yields itself to a very powerful message that you have in the book regarding uh, an employee-centered company. So I think we ought to touch on that a little bit about what it means and about why uh, contractors need to keep that as a, as a real central practice in how they build their company. Okay, so that's maybe the most important chapter in the book. Okay, let, let me see if I can get into this notion about the employee-centered company with some coherence. Um, first of all, I'm going to bridge over from the last subject that we were discussing. Yep. Uh, creation of an employee-centered company can be a create the correction of a thinking error. Um, I do observe pretty frequently among builders that um, they, em they embrace a thinking error that is, uh, well, it's just that, it's an error. 
I'll, I'll run into guys and, you know, builders around town and, and I'll hear from them often enough. You know, Dave, you just can't get good help anymore. Nobody wants to do an honest day's work. I think that's a thinking error. Uh, there are plenty of really good tradesmen around and guys who want to put in a good day's work because they know when they put in a good day's work, they feel good at the end of the day. If you're a contractor who thinks you can't get good help anymore, um, you need to correct that error and the emotion that goes with it, which is cynicism about people, and take action. And the action has to be changing yourself, your practices as a builder, because it is your practices as a builder which brings you bad help. Now, I want to pause for a moment and look at a procedure for correcting thinking errors. Really, it's three steps. It's cultivating the awareness, taking initiative, executing. That's the path. Awareness, initiative, execution. Now, the initiative and execution, I don't think it's particularly hard for those of us in construction. We are really good at initiating work and getting it done. You know, we're, we're good at uh, getting up in the morning and moving into action. If we, if we weren't, we'd, we wouldn't stay in business 10 minutes. We can, get, we can get stuff rolling. We can get stuff done. But um, the problem is that sometimes in our doing, we are tethered to a bad idea, to a, a thinking error. Um, to correct thinking errors, you've got to take the first step, which is become aware of them. And that, I have found, is hard. Um, I'm beginning to think that if you can find the right business coach, they might be able to help you do that. Uh, I happen to have recently met a business coach. Actually, I rented her a house who I'm really impressed with. And if I had ever met someone like that during my career as a builder, I think I would have helped hire them to help me examine my thinking and root out thinking errors. Never having found such a business coach, I practice something very similar to what um, is, is uh, mentioned in a very good business book called Traction. Of course, I've forgotten the author's name, but sitting right here on my shelf, I read it very carefully. What he emphasizes is that you got to pull yourself out of the action and get away and just think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and whether or not you're doing the right thing. I used to try to get myself to do that. I achieved it with some success and achieved it with some success today. It's hard. It's damn hard to stop taking care of the do list and go away and just sit and reflect about yourself, your enterprise, your values, your principles, your purpose, your possibilities for an hour. The way I would used to trick myself into it was I would go to my favorite coffee shop and I would splurge, um, violate my frugality principle. And instead of buying my usual cheapo decaf, I'd get a really big, good latte. And I'd sit there and I'd sip it um, for 45 minutes or an hour. And while I did, I would look over this little card I always carried around in my wallet, which enunciated the principles I want to live by and work by and build by. And I'd look at them and I'd think, you know, do I have them right? Um, do they need modification? If they're right, am I acting off them, off of them in the way I want to? And that could come down to a big specific. 
it could come down to whether or not I should take on a specific project. Now, let's say that the owner wanted me to build it. We'd been recommended to them by a friend of the owner and a client of ours. Um, but the owner was uh, clearly uh, a kind of a ruthless, arrogant person. Um, and he was going to be, and well, a husband in particular, and, and he was going to be around the house a lot while my crew was working. So um, a big principle for me was, you know, you run the company for your employees' benefit. So did I want to take on this person and ex expose my employees to them, um, to him, to these clients for six months while we built a remodel for them? Um, was I making a thinking error by being, you know, fired up about this project? Let's say it was a big project, with, you know, glamour project, a, a complete reconstruction of a beautiful house, let's say, um, which would stir up emotion in me as a builder, something I'd love to do. Um, was I making a thinking error leading to a bad action by giving, giving into that emotion? That's the kind of reflection I would do in that hopefully an hour a week with my latte. Um, I probably also was able to drill down far enough to see some thinking errors that are more personal that I'm not going to go into here that I really needed to go to work on and try to correct. And the way you correct a thinking error um, is you simply, every time it arises, you snuff it out and you replace it with a more reasonable, appropriate thought. It's actually a neurological process. Uh, I have a couple of friends, neighbors, actually, who are neuroscientists. I've talked to them about cognitive behavioral therapy and the correction of thinking errors. And they've explained to me, yeah, you think a thought over and over, you actually create a furrow through your brain. And once the furrow's there, the brain, because the brain likes to take the easy path, it's designed that way to not waste energy, will send your next thought down that same furrow and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And you think the thinking error, dysfunctional thought over and over and you act off of it again and again and so forth. So what you do to stop the thinking error is you just stop it. It takes will um, and you replace it with um, another thought. In the case of the example I was citing would be remember revenue, go big or go home is not what you want to be acting off of. You want to be acting off of bringing in jobs which are good for the company and will sustain it in the long run. And that involves, number one, taking care of your employees. So with that lengthy intro, let me get over to employee-centered company. Um, I came up with a phrase, employee-centered company, for my own use, actually not that long ago. Um, it was always sort of a guiding principle, but I never have a, a good name for it. After I did come up with the name, um, I ran across a wonderful book, which I recommend to any listeners out there who do like to read. It's called Small Giants. It's a series of stories about uh, small companies, which are just outstanding companies. Some of them are pretty famous. You've probably heard of them. One of them is a construction company that builds, um, does commercial work, building things like, you know, new stores for Target. Um, what's characteristic about all of these companies, there's one principle that ties them all together and ties my little operation to them in a small way, is the notion that customers don't come first. Customers come second, employees come first. And the reason is 
that if you put your employees first and you do everything you can to make a good work life for them, they will take, they'll be loyal to your company. They'll take great, great, great care of your customers and your customers will become your sales force. That's what happened to me. I loved my employees, admired them, and I still do. I mean, I had fabulous people. God knows why, because I'm not that easy a, a guy to be around. But there were reasons, and I'll get to them in a minute. Uh, but, but none of them ever quit, not once, not ever, because of the practices I adopted as an employer. Um, my customers loved them. In fact, on two occasions, my, my lead, two of my lead guys, two of my best lead people, Fred and Dave, were building for a client. And the client had little kids, and the little kids had stuffed animals. And they named their stuffed animals after my lead person. You know, bear was Fred one, and dog was Fred two, and monkey was Fred three. The customers loved these guys, and they recommended us because of the lead people and the crew and trade partners they worked with. They saw a lot more of them than they saw of me. Now, hopefully, they you know recommended our company because of me too. But I know it was the crew that built major loyalty in our clients. So let me get specific about some employee-centered practices. Um, I got to tell you, leading into that, I read something really interesting this morning, and I made a screenshot of it. This turned up in a, uh, a newsletter that I read every morning, a financial newsletter. Um, it's a little blurb about Apple employees organizing a union uh, at one major Apple store. What one of the employees organized involved in the union drive said, compensation is important considering, considering the cost of living in general and inflation. But the bigger thing, says the employee, name is Christy, is having a say. Um, yes, one of the principal characteristics of an employee-centered company is to the extent that it's practicable, you um, extend autonomy to your employees. Boy, did I learn a lesson about that once. Uh, one of my employee-centered practices is a 4-3 work week. Um, my guys, my crew, worked nine and a half hours a day, four days a week. Then they had three days off. If you look at that closely, what you'll see is the week is divided exactly in half. Half of it, during half of it, work for the company occurs. During the other half, no work for the company occurs. And I think that's an important employee-centered practice because it recognizes that the employees have a life outside of work. My employees love the 4-3 work week. I wrote about it a long time ago, recommended it. Now and then I'll hear from a, a construction pro around the country who's adopted it, and they always have good things to say about it. One exception, one guy finally found he couldn't quite make it work, so he decided to go 4-3 one, one week and five-day five work week the next. Um, for me, it worked wonders. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extension of autonomy to the employees, but you also have to extend autonomy during the workday at the work site. You, you have to recognize the need for the employees to have a say in things. And I, I learned that lesson deeply when I really fouled up once. Uh, the story I tell in, in my new book, new book, Building Freedom, we had the 4-3 work week, great um, recognition of the need of, from, of employees for autonomy in their lives. And the crews work um, Tuesday through Friday. 
They work on those four days. And for some reason, I decided it would be better for me if the work week was Monday through Thursday. And I just announced to them, we're, we're switching to Monday through Thursday. And boy, did I create a storm. My Thank goodness, my senior lead, this amazing carpenter and now amazing builder in Maine named Fred Blodgett, came to me and he said, Dave, everybody is really, really pissed off. They are thinking about quitting. They're so angry. All of them en masse. Why? What happened? I mean, you just, you just upended their lives without, you know, giving them any say in the, in the action. Um, you know, we, we've all organized our lives around this um, Tuesday through Friday work week. And suddenly you, you've pulled the rug out from under us and changed it. I went back and apologized immediately and said, sorry, folks. I mean, I, I was out of line. I didn't really understand completely, though, what a big mistake I'd made, what the nature of the mistake was um, for a while. I eventually go, came to me that, yeah, you know, you, you can't just step into their lives and change them that way without causing resentment um, and anger. So once I understood the lesson, I started to develop, you know, other practices for giving them a say. For example, when a new job came along, um, I'd get the plans that I was considering creating an estimate for, and I'd take it in, show it to the crew, and say, what do you think of this, guys? I mean, here's the location, here's the project, something you guys want to do. They never said no to a project. Um, but I'm sure that it meant a lot to them to have the question asked. Um, sometimes I would explain, look, this project has some downsides, but this is a downtime in the economy. We're at some risk of not having enough work if we don't take it. Should we take that risk or should we take the project? If they had said, don't take the project, I wouldn't have taken it. But fortunately, they never said no to a, a good a, a project that was good enough that I actually wanted it. So autonomy is real important. I think the 4-3 work week is a great gesture of employees come first. Um, critical point, Journal of Light Construction did a survey some years back about what really mattered to employees the most. They surveyed owners and they surveyed employees. It was interesting. The employers put pay first. They, they assumed that pay was the number one thing for employees. The employees put pay like fourth in a list of five. At the top of the list, they put respect and autonomy. And then I don't remember what the third item was at this very moment. But and I thought that's real interesting. Um, but I want to emphasize that doesn't mean pay is unimportant. And the reason pay is important is because paying well is a gesture of respect, an especially important way of paying well as a gesture of respect is, in my opinion, profit sharing. Um, you're saying to your company, your employees, you know what, we're all in this together. We create, we create the profit together or manage to not make a profit together. But if we make one, you get a share of it. Now I got to add something here. None of this, none of this employee-centered stuff is woo-woo or just Dave Gristel's a nice guy. I don't give a shit if people think I'm a nice guy, and I'm not. Um, I heard once somebody say, "You're a pretty nice guy." I was horrified. Good grief! You know, I mean, that's really dangerous for a general contractor to be a nice guy. I got to go. That's, I must be creating. I must be committing some kind of thinking error. I got to straighten this right out. <laughs> but seriously. It wasn't just generosity or 
you know, some kind of religious principle that motivated me to create employee center company. It was all of those gestures I took were actually acts of enlightened self-interest. The 4-3 work week greatly reduced stress in my life. It was great to have employees on the job site only four days a week, not five. That's a whole, that's a day that really opens up for me as a result. Profit sharing, that sounds like, you know, generosity, giving away some of your profit. The fact is what I was able to construct a profit sharing program and a very good one. We had the most generous profit sharing com company in, um, in among a hundred that were covered in a, in a survey of Bay Area construction companies. But the fact is it didn't cost me a nickel because of the way I set it up or very few nickels. It cost me a little bit, but I set it up in such a way it delayed taxes enough for me so that the delay in taxation was made up pretty much for the profit sharing I extended my employees. In other words, I was able to, by profit sharing with them, put a great deal more money into my retirement accounts where I could invest for financial freedom and not have to pay taxes until much, much later in life, which for me is now. Now the taxes are pretty high, but now I'm in a position where I'm so well fixed, taxes don't bother me. Um, so th there was enlightened self-interest at work and all of these em employee-friendly gestures. I'm going to mention one more, a small one, that really matters. A, for a business savant of the guy who wrote How to in Make Friends and Influence People, forgot his name, of course, um, famous. Dale Carnegie. Yeah, Dale Carnegie. Thank you. Man, you're good with names. Mm -hmm. um, I hate the second half of his book. It's all about manipulating people. But the first half is great. It's really about treating people with respect. Um, and he emphasizes that the, the most important word in the English language or all languages for all of us is our name. As an employer, you need to remember that. Um, I've seen twice construction pros act without that awareness, act without corrections of thinking error that led them to ignore their employee's name. In one case, the employer, the contractor, was a young guy who'd bought a legendary construction company. He had great ambitions for it. And um, the owner sold it to him thinking he had sold it to the right person. And I'll, I'll let you know what the upshot was in a minute or two. But um, that company had at its core an amazing group of carpenters who were the project leads. I mean, uh, you know, six, eight, 10 guys who are just absolutely top notch and are very dedicated to the company because they love the founder who treated them with great respect and equal adoration. The new guy, different kind of mentality. I began to hear from the old guys, the veterans of the company, the company, its core, they were really pissed off at the new guy. And why? Because when a new employee would come into the company, he wouldn't even bother to learn their name or remember their name or call them by their name. And the older guys found this really offensive. And their loyalty to the company began to subside and dilute. And I think that had something to do with the eventual outcome for the company. Three years after the young guy bought it from the founder, it was bankrupt. Um, I also was working on a job once with a, a plumber that I, that I employed for a while as a trade partner. Excellent plumber, did really good work, really knew his stuff. 
But I, I was startled by the way he treated his employees. He would, whenever something went well, he would take credit. When something went badly, he would blame them and let them hear him placing the blame on them as he talked to me. And almost worse, when we were talking, I would say, well, how about this? And he would, he would gesture over his shoulder at an employee who was also an excellent plumber and say, I'll have him take care of it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't turn and say, Bob, Dave's, you know, made a request here. Could, uh, you know, when it fits into your workflow, could you, could you take, could you handle this, which was the right way to do it. Um, he had a lot of turnover. Uh, I had no turnover. I know another builder who I think is probably even better than I ever was. I'm sure you is um, at, at acting off employee-centered principles. And that's Paul Eldrin Camp, um, owner of Bigamizer in Boston. Um, Paul's a legendary builder. He's written some of the best articles ever written about construction company management. You can find them online for free in the Journal of Light Construction. Um, Paul never had any turnover. I mean, nobody ever quit his company. I think he, he said their average turnover rate was one employee every five years. <laughs> And he had 14 employees. Um, and that's payoff. That's not just, you know, that doesn't just make you feel good. That's payoff because um, turnover is really expensive. For one thing, when you hire a new, new person, you might make a mistake and they may do a lot of damage to your company. For a second thing, your customers don't just recommend the company. They say to their friend they're telling about the company, oh, yeah, and he's got this wonderful lead person. Uh, you Make sure you ask for them. The new, the new, the potential new customer calls. You don't want to have to say to them, "Oh, Peter, uh, he's no longer with us. He, you know, he don't like the company very much." You are able to say, "Yeah, we could, we could probably arrange things so Peter could be the lead on your project too." You want your people to stay with you. It's there's emotional payoff to that too. I, I have a an acquaintance, a local builder, who I have great respect for. A small company, about six employees. And uh, an architect I know who works with this guy a lot said to me recently, you know, they're like a band of brothers and sisters because there's a woman or two in there, too. And uh, they've got each other's back. That's a, a wonderful feeling, I think, for a builder to have that relationship with employees. And you get it only if you run an employer-centered company. Make your customers second because that way your, your employees make your customers your sales force. I think you summed it up perfectly, at least from my perspective. I strive to have what you've coined an employee-centered company, David, and um, we do things such as profit sharing. You always feel like as a small business owner that you can do it better, and we're looking for it. But um, it, it is absolutely uh, my experience that trying to run a company as such, we've had almost zero turnover, but we treat our team right. We share profits. We have good compensation plans. We don't have that four-day work schedule, which I'm I'm envious of myself. <laughs> that sounds nice, but perhaps one day in the future. And uh, one thing that you said that I, yeah, I want to try it just one week a month, see how it works. You know what? All I got to do is is put it out there in our weekly team meeting tomorrow, and I bet we'll get a unanimous vote in favor of. So, yeah, <laughs> hope um, I'm not getting you in trouble. But no, I, I think that I think it's a actually fascinating. Uh, you know, fascinating actually, project. just doing it one week a month is. I never thought of that before, but wouldn't that be a nice little additional bonus? 
People oh, yeah. that of course. last week of the month when they're tired. Yeah. Did you use the term enlightened self-interest? Did I hear you properly? Yeah. I liked that. I, I liked that that term. You were talking about one of the principles when you mentioned that. When I interviewed Wally Staples again uh, last week, we were talking about the value of paid time off that he gives his employees. And we yeah. went into the into a conversation about how it's actually a lot of builders will be fearful of that because you think that there's going to be disruptions to your crew and uh, to your operation whenever a valued team member employee takes off for a while. But truth is they come back. It, a, it's just such a human necessity. B, they come back a lot more refreshed, more productive. Wow. And so that right there is another example of, I love that term, enlightened self-interest. Wally, Wally is much younger than me, and he's one of my heroes. I mean, he is an ardent role model practitioner of the employ- of employer-centered practices. He, anybody who's listening to this podcast, do yourself a favor. Uh, go listen to Wally. Yeah. Guys well, not, not only that, David, but I mean, I think he probably employs just about every one of your principles in terms of frugality and all the different things that you really espouse for uh, for building freedom. So he is a great real life example. By the way, the guy is the guy is he's just done incredibly well for himself financially. Yeah, he's 50 and he's way past the point that he has to work to make a living. He does it because he loves what he does. Let's shift gears to talk about something that, well, here's some self-interest. <laughs> I don't know about enlightened, just here's self-interest. I am really interested in in the part of your book where you talk about where a construction pro can invest. So, you know, when I was earlier in my career, I was studying for the CFA exam and one of the things that we learned in, in kind of the latter part of that journey is small business owners, when they are successful, they build up this net worth. And, but then a lot of their net worth gets contained within the business itself. Uh, they've got a lot of concentration risk in hmm. that, uh, in that net worth. You and I've t- talked before about the possibility of selling building up a construction company and possibly selling that, exiting that at some point, and then also putting that money to work in, in various things uh, to truly have that, as you call it, free cash flow to, to live off of and live a good life. So let me sh- sharpen this question a little bit. Let's talk about first selling your construction company. Walk us through your thoughts on that because we've had some debates on that before. How does that look for you? How should our listeners think about that possibility for their own career paths. I'm going to mention something here, which you may or may not leave in the podcast, but um, you mentioned your CFA exam. I want listeners to know what that means. That's Mm. certified financial analyst. Um, From what I understand about the exam, it makes passing the bar or passing the CPA exam, that certified public accountant exam, look like a walk in the park. I think 100 guys a year pass the exam. Um, It's just incredibly difficult, and it requires a huge depth of knowledge about uh, financial matters and and an ability beyond that to really think imaginatively about financial matters. We're pretty goddamn lucky to have a guy who actually accomplished that and has enough 
understanding of financial matters, um, hosting a podcast for us little artists and contractors. I appreciate the words. It kept me, David, it kept me out of trouble in my early 20s because it's about a three or four year course. So as oh, opposed God. to going and doing what, what most guys my age were doing, I was at <laughs> home studying. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. yeah so tell us. my choice has been as an investor to invest in a small number of rental properties, um, not to own very many of them at any one time. At this point, I own two. Now, there's a local reason for that. I happen to live on one of the most dangerous earthquake faults in the world. So you wouldn't necessarily want to have your assets concentrated on an earthquake fault. My, my choice was to invest very little in my construction company, only what I needed for it to run really efficiently and effectively. So a small company. I mean, in today's dollars, uh, we would be doing maybe 10 million a year. That's a small company, um, micro company, really. So, um, you know, three crews or so out in the field at any one time, three projects going, one kind of wrapping up, one underway, one halfway through, that sort of thing. Big projects. I mean, some of our projects in today's dollars would run three, four million bucks. Um, I invested, I chose to invest uh, from a pretty early age um, in stocks and bonds. Now, I'm not going to go into the reasons why or how to avoid hazard when you do that. Um, I've written a couple of chapters about it. They're a distillation of everything I've learned about stock and bond investing over decades of doing it. It has It has worked out extremely well for me. Um, I, it, it, it gives enormous freedom because the way I do it and the way I think it's best done requires virtually no management. So it doesn't, it doesn't impinge on your freedom. You can get involved in a set of investments that will um, bolo you and hamstring you and tie you up and shackle you and handcuff you rather than giving you freedom because they're going to require so much investment. And that, that um, among those kinds of investments, by the way, are rental properties. Now, when I start off my chapter about investing, my chapter in building freedom, I say something like, um, reader, you may be wondering about in, uh, you know, investing in your own company. You might be thinking, jeez, uh, I mean, why don't I take this additional profit I'm making and invest in my company, make a, you know, build a really good looking operation, buy a building, um, get a secretary, get all the latest, hottest software, get a warehouse, stock it with tools and materials and so forth. Um, your thought might be, you know, I'll build this, I'll build this company. You guys do this. They do it all the time. Um, spend some years, decades building it, really tune it up, and then I'll sell it. And I'll make a fortune and I'll live happily ever after, you know, on the golf links or whatever. So, okay. Um, I got suspicious about investing in your own construction company and building it up as a, as a path to financial freedom <laughs> early in my career, because one reason or another, I got um, access to knowledge about a company that actually built like big buildings, um, medium rise buildings, apartment buildings, commercial buildings. 
in downtown San Francisco and elsewhere. It was owned by five guys who are partners. They eventually sold the company for $5 million. Now, this is a long time ago. In today's dollars, you know, maybe it would have been $25 million. But I was a little startled. I mean, these guys have spent their lives building this company. They only got a million bucks each for it? Not, yeah. Not only that, two years later, they didn't get cash on the barrelhead. Uh, they were to be paid off out of the profits the company was making over a series of years. Two years later, the guys who bought the company handled it, handed it back to the five founders, said, this company's not worth owning. We're giving it back to you. A recession had struck, maybe. So I began really wondering about the idea of investing in a construction company as a way to find your, your path to financial freedom. And I'm still skeptical about it. Now, let me say that I do have two friends whom I admire. One is Steve Nichols, who's one of the founders of Mueller Nichols Construction. The other is Iris Sorrell, whom you may have run across as you've been hanging around construction conferences over the years. She built a uh, quite remarkable remodeling firm down in Silicon Valley. Both Iris and Steve sold their companies to their employees. Um, and I think they've now been paid off and their employees own the company and they're pretty content with the result. Um, then there's Paul Winans. Paul Winans, um, you may know of because he <clears throat> was a facilitator for Remodelers Advantage for many years, a beloved facilitator, a, um, a very respected facilitator, it turns out. Beloved might not be quite the right word, but very respected facilitator. He built a remodeling company um, together with his wife, Nina. And they decided um, that they wanted to tool it up, um, improve it, to the extent that they could sell it. And they did, they sold it on the open market through a broker. And they were then able to retire to Ashland, Oregon. And from what I hear, they're like in their retired life. Now it took them a long time to get there. And they, I think actually would have liked to have been out of the business much earlier. Paul found it somewhat wearying, but so be it. However, um, these stories are relatively, our success stories are relatively unusual. Um, another perspective on just how unusual they are comes from uh, Victoria Downing, who is the head of Remodelers Advantage, which has several hundred members. It's a Remodelers Education Consulting Consortium. Victoria says that, you know, when new members come into the, the, uh, the group, into Remodelers Advantage, they often have this vision that they're going to build up their companies, sell them, and retire happily ever after. She tell, when she tells them what's really necessary, she says, they just abandon the dream. You know, they retool their plans for the future. <clears throat> There's some real, real difficult realities, which I'm going to enumerate specifically, when it comes to selling a construction company. The first is that um, your timing has to be really good. That's illustrated by the Winans experience. They sold toward the end of a boom, quite by chance. The boom, they got cash on the barrel ahead. The boom ended, the company collapsed. When a boom is not going on, there's no market for construction companies. That's one. You got to time it just right, the sale. Two, you've got to create a company that is not a spoke and hub company. That information, and by the way, most of the information I'm going to give you about the challenges of selling a construction company 
come not only from my own observation, they come from pretty extensive interviews with three business brokers, guys who sell businesses as opposed to houses, for example. Um, I interviewed them. I interviewed these three guys about what it takes to sell a construction company, what the likely outcomes were. So I'm passing on to you what I learned from them as well as from my own observations. They say no spoken hub company. Spoken hub company is a company like the one I ran where the builder's at the center of it and he's got employees out in the field, but he's, the builder is probably handling personally most of the, the key functions um, or, or certainly some of the key functions, marketing, sales, estimating, bidding in particular. You may very well have delegated production to lead people, as I did. That kind of spoken hub company is not very saleable because the guy, someone who, who's going to step into the, the hub role um, doesn't really want to pay to have to do that. He may as well just organize his own company and be a hub from the get-go. Doesn't really need to pay somebody else to provide him with that opportunity. Most, the most he'd be getting would be employees who may or may not welcome him, may, may not stick with him, and maybe a you know a list of potential customers who may or may not want to work with him again because, after all, their trust is extended to the former owner and the people who came up with him, his his spokes, his employees. So you want to see, if you want to create a saleable company, you have to create a company which um, has an employee who handles marketing, an employee handles sales, employee handles estimating, and so forth. The brokers emphasize that. And that takes a long time. The, the winers spent 10 years building that kind of company. They did it. You know, they created policy manuals and procedure manuals, which laid out every step that every person in a critical position in the company needed to be taken in their absence. So the company could basically run without them. And they, they, they test flew it. They would back out of the company for a month and tell the employees, don't call me, run the company. We got to make sure it can run without us. Well, that's tough. That's a big challenge. And there's risk there. Handing off estimating is particularly risky. I've seen guys uh, hand off estimating and then the estimator proceeds to bankrupt the company very quickly by producing some really woefully bad estimates. That happened to an HVAC guy that I worked with for a while. That's a big obstacle. Um, and then there's the question about how much you're actually going to get. Uh, not very much. Uh, when someone buys a construction company, <clears throat> if they understand investment at all, they're going to be, quote, discounting sales price back to present value. In other words, they're going to be asking, if I give X dollars for this company, how much is the company going to make me and what percentage of sales price that I pay am I going to be receiving? And is that percentage a good return relative to other optional investments like a bond portfolio or equity in a Fortune 500 company? And what investors discover is that construction companies, if discounted back to present value, aren't worth very much. The, the brokers I talked to gave me different figures for the value of a construction company. All of the figures were generated by a multiple times profit. In other words, if a construction company enjoyed a profit, annual profit of 300,000, or let's say an average annual profit over the preceding five to 10 years of say 300,000 a year, um, then its value was, you know, whatever, one, two, three, six, eight, nine times profit. Well, it was never nine. 
the most optimistic guys said um, maybe three times profit. Um, the most optimistic. Most optimistic. The moderate wow. guys um, said yeah, maybe for a you know a remodeling company, a custom built home building firm, maybe two times profit. And other guys said, nah, construction company is you can sell it at all, one times profit. Exactly. So you're making 300,000 bucks a year profit, um, maybe get $300,000 for it. And I've observed a number of companies sold um, in my area. And in fact, they're getting, their owners got one to one and a half times profit. That's what they got. Uh, a very well-established plumbing company was uh, sold it around one and a half times profit. Now, there are what you might call construction companies that can do uh, much better. Um, these would be specialty companies, say a company that puts in alarm systems. Now, interestingly, alarm companies that put in alarm systems but also sell with the alarm system, a contract to service the system, are worth a lot more than companies which just install systems. That's another challenge to creating a saleable um, construction company. You need to create a company which has recurring business, as the brokers put it. That gives them a lot more value than companies that just do one-offs like a remodel. And then, you know, may do another job for the same customer, but five or six or eight, 10 years later, they don't have a reliable, steady cash flow generated out of recurring business. So if you want to, if you want to create a construction company, that's going to bring you a fair return when you sell it, you know, quite a, quite a sum when you return it, it needs to be um, a company that has recurring cash flow. It needs to be a company that's not a spoken hub operation. Now for builders like me, I have a question. Let's say you've created a company which generates in owner's pay and profit, say 400,000 bucks a year. And, and you're able to sell it. For four hundred thousand, or even six hundred thousand, why sell it? I mean, the company is probably named after you. My company was just named David Gristel Builder, now, partly because I could never think of a better name. Partly because mm -hmm. I'd written books, and so using my name is also the name of the construction company. gave us gave me a slight, slight, um, you know, marketing juice, a bit of marketing juice. Um, <clears throat> What I figured was, yeah, I could sell David Gristel Builder, but then I can't, I can't be David Gristel Builder afterward. And the, the fact of the matter was, if I, I, could, I could just put the company aside, let the employees go, keep the company, and when I felt like it, fired up, do a project. And the fact was, I could make $600,000 running my company in a year to a year and a half, and I could do it again. The reason is, if your company is really compact, and it's just you and the computer in a little corner of some room, and you fire that operation up now and then, you can be the, the bidder, the estimator, you go out there and be the project manager, and you can make a heck of a lot of money really fast on a single project when, when you're in a strong economy. Um, and you can make an amount of money equivalent to what you could sell your company for in a very short period of time, and you still have the company. Now that brings you to another challenge of selling your company. You know, you sell your company, if you've created an employee-centered company and come to be with your employees, a band of brothers, you don't really want to abandon them to a stranger. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you're Iris Sorrell or Steve Nichols, you think you can 
set up a really good new CEO to run the company as they did. And your employees are going to continue to have a good experience. That's what Iris and Steve have aimed for. And hopefully they've been successful in that effort. I, I can't say for sure. Um, they haven't to sell their companies that long ago. There's another option, though, to taking care of your employees. Um, and that's helping each of your employees set up their own company or get a really good job with another company. I did that for one of my employees. He moved back to his home state of Minnesota. I got a call from a guy he was applying to a job for. Um, the guy was a little hesitant about hiring David for reasons I won't mention, uh, but he realized David was on the cover of my first book on running construction companies, which he had read as he learned how to run his own company. So he thought he better call me. Hmm. I said, well, let me tell you this, buddy. If you ever make a mistake as dumb as not hiring David Lassman as a project lead, I just hope to God you don't ever make another mistake that bad in your life because the guy is a genius at his work hiring him. So David went to work for the guy. And last I heard, he'd actually retired himself after a decades-long career with this builder, which worked out very well for David and I'm sure worked out really well for his employer because he was a fabulous project lead. Likewise, I was able to help other of my employees, you know, peel off, go to work for other builders or start their own companies. Um, so there's a solution. There, there's a solution to that, that, that other challenge of closing up your company, which is continuing to stand by your employees. Um, all in all, I would say for most builders, investing a lot of money in your company in order to create a saleable company, taking a lot of additional risk to create a saleable company is probably not your best choice if, if financial freedom is your purpose and goal. You're better off running an extremely lean company and uh, investing your profits in other companies, like the companies that make up the Fortune 500 and which are available to you by a purchase of a standard and poor index fund and creating one or two free and clear, no mortgage, really good rental properties. Um, I have two rental properties, built them out of savings decades ago. They now produce annual cash flows approaching 80 grand. Um, and they're very easy to manage because I have my tenants are, you know, our friends, they get a good deal. Um, I take really good care of their properties and of them, they have a need. So renting to them is a pleasure. So there you are. I mean, that's my thought about selling construction companies. It, you can build a saleable company. It's been done. It's been done well. I've cited some examples. Generally, it doesn't work out. And there are, I think, in my view, for most of us, better paths to financial freedom. And yeah. I sketch them out in my book, Building Freedom. I mean, the last half of the book is actually about creation of investments, the actual path toward financial freedom. I couldn't agree more with assessment. I think that the primary value of a custom home building company is the strong cash flow that that it can it can generate uh, as well. Yes, it can be sold, but it's uh, it's challenging and and uh, not a great prospect for riding off into the sunset if you're expecting to make ten times multiple ten times excuse me ten times. Uh, uh, net profit on uh, on a sale. It's not going to happen in in the home building industry. Uh, listen, um, construction is one of the worst businesses 
in existence in general. The construction industry is a very weak sector of our economy. It's a being in construction. I mean, if you want to choose a business for the purpose of getting rich, the last one, the last one you would choose would be either airlines or construction. Uh, uh, Warren Buffett famously said, "The worst enemy of capitalism is not Karl Marx; it's the airline industry." Uh, huh. I'd, I'd challenge him. I'd say it's probably the construction industry. But so, why hmm. put your profit into this anemic industry? Invest it in stronger sectors of the economy. Wonderful advice. Well, David, I have a client call that I got to hop on right oh, now. I would, I would uh, actually prefer to be uh, to be continuing this conversation with you. There's so much depth to the book. Um, it would take us hours to truly get through everything, and that's not the point anyway. Um, our listeners need to go out and buy it um, because it's it's a wonderful addition to their uh, library. And our uh, listeners need to go out and take care of their employees, Jared. That's first. Then they can buy the book if they got a little time left over. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> we will uh we will let that be the advice to them. Thank you, David, for your time as always. It went by too fast, but I know we're gonna be back on behind the mic together again before long. So I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I pre I really appreciate being here. It's a privilege. <laughs>